throughout Job 11 through 14. I'm sure you can pick up on it. Uh, the title is An Empty and Cruel System. Uh, Zophar brings the level of cruelty to another level. Uh, but there's something interesting about the friends, and it's that what they say oftentimes seems so close to the truth. And I don't know if you've ever played uh, this game. I know they did it in the juniors uh, classroom two weeks ago. It's where you share two things about yourself, one that is true and one that is a lie. And the easy ones to figure out, right, are when a kid says, uh, you know, that their parents are such and such, and you know their parents' name, and then they say that they can lift 5,000 pounds, and you're like, well, that's easy. That's obviously a lie, right? Uh, the kids that are great at this and the adults are the ones that can share two things and where the lie is really close to the truth, so close that it could be believed. And I want you to assume as we continue walking through the dialogue with Job's friends and Job's response, that Job's friends are playing that game and they're extremely good at it. They share things that are so close to the truth, but are not quite true in context or in application. We're going to hear Zophar say things about God that are true, uh, but his arrogance is so permeates what he's saying that you realize he sees only Job as the one that doesn't know it. Uh, one writer notes this, the danger of the friend's words is they get so close to the truth, but they don't share what is true. And we've seen that with Eliphaz, who is a prosperity gospel preacher in the context that he gives. We've seen it with Bildad, who is a works salvation guy, and we're going to find it with Zophar as well. Now in the circle of friends, Zophar is last and, and that's on purpose. He is the least esteemed and this is what I find fascinating. Uh, so they went in order of, of eliteness, so to speak. So he's the least in the friends, but he's the most dogmatic and he's extra arrogant. Um, he sees himself as knowing it all, which Eliphaz had the same flavor, yet he sees Job as floundering in simplistic confusion. He speaks to Job like you speak to a child that doesn't understand. Uh, he has a bit of a God complex about himself, and he brings back the prosperity gospel of Eliphaz, but he adds an extra dose of cruelty to it. Uh, he completely misrepresents Job, which we talk about the friends do. They don't listen to Job. Uh, they're not paying attention to the sufferer. They're not thinking through his circumstances. He um, purposely takes Job's words and actually doesn't quote Job accurately. He takes some of the statements. He twists them to say what Job never intended. He ignores that what was said were said from horrific circumstances and an and, and impossible scenario. He, he doesn't take in, into effect that Job's mind is in agony. And so he just looks at things and then he speaks of God, some of which is true. Uh, there's statements that, that are accurate about God, but again, it's surrounded by such cruelty that it becomes nearly impossible to come away with the right application, partly because he doesn't make the right application. So with no further introduction to Zophar, we're going to dive into what Zophar said. This is chapter uh, 11 of Job. Uh, and Theron read the first six verses, and they, they are somewhat horribly cruel. But if you look at this, he starts off the same way as the other guys did. He basically tells Job, you're a windbag, and more windbag insults. But he has a bit of a vendetta and a calling. He wants Job's silly talk to be put to shame. 
He doesn't want him to stop talking. He wants him to be punished for what he says. He goes on and says, and here's where he misquotes Job. He says, you're saying your doctrine is pure and that you're clean in your own eyes. That's verse four. He says to Job, you, you claim to be clear and correct in what you say about God. But what did Job say last week? He says he's confused. He doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> and they say, you think you're so smart. Um, beyond that, he says, Job, you've told everyone that you're sinless. That's what the word clean means. You're clean. You have no sin. When in actuality, Job says, I'm blameless. I'm a man of integrity. And actually, what I find fascinating is Job's response today, he deals with sin and he admits to sin. And so he's going to correct Zophar in that. And I want you to realize, making that note, um, Zophar, again, is not listening to Job. He's hearing what he wants to hear, and then he's attacking him. Because Job, remember, when he says he's blameless, he's saying, I'm a man of integrity. I don't have any hidden sin. I'm genuine. He's not saying he's perfect. And then Zophar says, oh, if God would speak and open his lips against thee. What did Job want to do? He wanted to talk to God and understand what's going on. I want to talk to God. And Zophar says, I want God to condemn you. I want God to come after you even more. And he kind of loads up six with uh, that God will show you the secrets of wisdom, that they're double to that which is. And that's Zophar saying, I know the secrets of wisdom. You don't. And I want God to tell you. Because his arrogance permeates everything he says and the way the poetry lines up. It is telling us, I know, but you don't know, Job. And then he says, Some of the cruelest words, know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. Now, as an overarching theme, we get from God mercy and grace. None of us pay for our sin like we deserve. Take this word, though, in the context of what he's saying. He says he wants God to speak up against Job to show how little Job knows. And then he says this, God has not even punished you as much as you deserve. You're bankrupt. It's not what you deserve. You deserve more. You've lost your servants and your employees. You deserve more. Your children are all dead in one fell swoop. You deserve more suffering. You have failing health, but all of that is just a small portion of what God should have done to you. And I think we can see Zophar launches with the same insult as Bildad, which shows no originality, and then two, how can I make it hurt even more? You deserve more. And I want you to think in your mind, what more could have happened to Job? And the word is nothing. So he's saying, I wish you hurt more, but it's impossible for you to hurt more. The only thing that's left is for Job to die, and Job's begging to die. So even by being alive, it's almost a punishment. Then he goes on, Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? And these are statements that are true. Can you really understand the full immensity of God? You cannot. It is as high as heaven, what canst thou do? Deeper than hell, what canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. And, and he's right. God is more majestic than we could ever know. He's beyond all known parameters, bigger than anything we can imagine. But Zophar only applies that knowledge to others. 
in his statement and the way he launches, he's saying, you can never know God. I already know everything about God. He's, in essence, while speaking truth about God, counteracting what he says, because remember, he knows it all. And so he's telling Job, you'll never know it, but I already do. And by saying I already do, he's proving that he's a liar because you can't know. The truth is actually in the the basic words, but the whole context of his poetry is, I know about God, but you don't. And then he makes an application designed to tell Job that he's worthless. He says, if he cut off and shut up or gather together, then who can hinder him? Who can stop God? We know that. For he knoweth vain men. And that word vain is worthless. He knows worthless people. He seeketh, he seeth wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? For vain man would be wise. A worthless person will be wise, though man be born like a wild donkey's colt. In other words, When a man is born from a donkey, that's when someone as worthless as you will have something wise to say. God, with all his knowledge and presence, goes to earth and he gathers the worthless up. He imprisons them in suffering or other, and there they can do nothing about it. There's nothing they can say, and worthless people cannot challenge or talk to God about it. What has Job been begging to do? Let me talk to God. What is Zophar saying? Worthless people like you don't talk to God. You don't get that opportunity. You don't have that audience. You'll never get that audience. And then to be even more insulting and condescending, he's saying that stubborn or stupid people like Job can never become wise, just like a man is not born from a donkey. It is impossible. Then he goes on, if thou prepare thine heart and stretch out thine hands toward him, if iniquity be in thine hand, put it far away and let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacles. Basically, he comes back to the same call that all the friends have said, Job, repent and pray, lift up your hands. And then he says, make sure your hands are clean though. If there's sin in your hands, get that sin taken care of. And what is he accusing Job of? You have hidden sin, deal with your hidden sin. And then he starts sharing the benefits the gains of repentance. The gains are what you're going to come. For then shalt thou lift up thy face without spot. And he's not talking about having sin forgiving. He's saying you can actually stand up and you can be dignified again. You don't need to sit on an ash heap outside of town. You can stand and be dignified. Yea, thou shalt be steadfast and shalt not fear. You're not going to worry anymore because thou shalt forget thy misery and remember it as waters that pass away. How ridiculous is that? Your kids are dead, you've lost your fortune, you lost your servants, you're on an ash heap outside, but you know what? Get right with God and he'll make all that flow away. You'll never think about those dead kids again. It's the callousness that's coming off of him, but also the prosperity gospel. All will be good, you'll be blessed again. Thine age shall be clearer than the noonday, thou shalt shine forth, thou shalt be as the morning. Life will be clear and bright, no more gloom and doom for you. And thou shalt be secure because there is hope, And recognize that there's hope. When God gives you all material things, that's your hope. Getting on this side is hope. If you'll just do what God wants you to do, check the boxes, then guess what? God will give you what you need, the hope. Yea, they shall dig about thee, and thou shalt take thy rest in safety, and thou shalt lie down, and none shall make thee afraid. Yea, many shall make suit unto thee. In other words, you're going to be at peace your future secure, your place in society elevated and enviable yet again, which is just a mockery to what he was because that's everything he was to the world around him. But the eyes of the wicked shall fail and they shall not escape. 
and their hope shall be as the giving up of the ghost. But if you don't repent, Job, he says, you face the fate of the wicked, eyes going dark, no escape from judgment, your best hope, the wheezing gasp of a dying man. You see, Zophar does something close to truth. He elevates God's wisdom. But in the context of elevating God's wisdom, he pulls himself right up with him and says, hey, if only you could know what I know. If only you would listen to me. And so what he does by talking about God, he manipulates it to condemn Job as a worthless person and petitions him to repent of a hidden sin so he could get his stuff back. Say the magic word, Job, and God gives you stuff. And you'll have it all back like you wanted. But you got to say the magic words. And see, Job is listening to this. And I want you to put yourself in Job's shoes. You have no hidden sin. Job 1 has told you that you're, we know he's blameless. He's right. He's a man of integrity with no hidden sin. He's a genuine person. A genuine person can't repent of sin that's not there. That would be a non-blameless person. And so he's stuck in this situation and now we take a look, and I want to just dive into a little bit what Zophar meant or what his purpose was. Because you can kind of understand Zophar's speech just by walking through it. But what, what is he trying to accomplish? What is Zophar's goal? And one, he wants to elevate and insulate himself. That's an interesting two-part thing. That's not two separate things. He wants to lift himself up. Remember, he's the third-tier friend, speaking third for a reason. He wants to insulate himself. By speaking this way, he prevents having to deal with his own lack or even the possibility that he could face this type of suffering. The, the, the perspective of the friends is repeated in our world today. It is the most foolish thing ever. If you read the Psalms, you see the wicked prospering. You, psalm 73 is a, is a very insightful psalm. Because the wicked are gaining like crazy, and what happens is the psalmist in the middle, nothing changes with the wicked. He suddenly realizes is the wicked's eternal perspective, and that changes how he sees things. But if you honestly look around you, you know that the wicked can prosper, and you know that good can suffer. We've seen that. We, 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 we can't deny that. Look at the vileness that happens, the horrible oppression that takes place. Look at innocent children that face the horribleness of our perverse society. And you'd have to say they're not all wicked, that they're deserving of that punishment in that context, but that good suffers and that wicked people are elevated. But see, if I talk this way, when I feel good, I don't have to deal with reality. And that's what he's doing. I want to lift myself up and I want to insulate myself from thinking about what's real. Zophar does not want to process the reality of Job's suffering because he never wants to process the possibility that he could face that type of suffering. And Zophar wants to remain in his bubble of arrogance, doling out advice that he hopes never to take because he already knows it all. Often what he sounds, he's going to sound right, but it's going to be completely misapplied. And what is his push? Repent of something you haven't done so that you can get back what you've lost. That is prosperity gospel. That is still preached today all over the world, actually. One of the, the hardest areas uh, hit by this is areas of extreme poverty. We see this in Nicaragua. We see this in Africa. We see this all over, especially in areas where people are, are desperate for some help. In other words, what I want you to realize is that this is a very tempting thing to hear for Job. 
This idea of getting out of this, a quick fix out of this stuff and to get back to life like I want it. What we see today is often the positive side of prosperity gospel. It's not overcoming or getting out of a pain that's happened to you. Job faced loss. And so the temptation is actually even more tangible. He's seen wealth, riches, enviable position. And so this, this thing is highly tempting. Why do people preach a prosperity gospel? Because they don't have to deal with reality. Because they can just get, 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 and get some more and never deal with life. Never deal with a, with a world that has fallen, that needs a savior. And now he continues and he has to do this. So he elevates and insulates himself. And to, to, to make that happen, he has to confront and condemn Job. So he misrepresents what Job has said, ignores the reality of Job's circumstances, and ultimately twists God's truth. And I want to remind us again, what do the friends do? They don't listen to Job and they don't listen to God. So Zophar assumes that Job is hidden sin and pushes relentlessly for him to admit it. He cannot bear the thought of undeserved suffering because that removes his security blanket. I want to add this. We talked about this with Bildad. If you don't believe in undeserved suffering, then how does Zophar describe Jesus Christ? We'd have to look at Jesus Christ and say, there's a wicked man because he's suffering. And he's on the cross and he's been beaten by his own people after doing all those miracles, everything stripped away from him. In other words, these guys can never see Jesus Christ for who he was. These are Pharisees screaming out, saying, don't mess with our system. We like what we're doing. Don't mess with our life. We don't want a Messiah. We don't want a Savior. That's what they're saying, because life's good. So leave us be. And so Zophar unwittingly pitches Satan's rhetoric again, just as Eliphaz had done. Repent so you can get right and get flush again. Serve so that you can be served by God. And how much of our Christianity says that? Well, serve God and he'll give you prosperity. Serve God and he'll give you peace. Do you realize even in the things that are good, we we were manipulating God. We're trying to get from God something. We serve because he will then serve us. Now, there's some promises in the New Testament that, that shares that, but it's going beyond this world and this material type of peace and joy. Which remember, what does Satan accuse us before God of? People serve you, God, because you make life good for them. And so if you, to get out of suffering, apply that principle, you've proven Satan's point to God. And I want to remind you again, the amount of, well, sovereignty that's in God and the trust that he's given to Job, because God, instead of proving himself right to Satan directly, says, I'm going to prove me right through Job. And you realize that, again, Job is sitting here as the battleground proving God's goodness by how he deals with suffering. And yet, through it all, you never see God super sensitive. Remember last week, he, he can handle this because ultimately he knows what's going to unfold. Take stock for a moment and see how we deal with reality. Are we afraid of having our security or arrogance bubble popped so we resort to twisting truth to protect it? How do we take God's word and turn it just a little bit so it doesn't mess with the life we have too much? Uh, We don't look like heretics because we tweak it. And when you tweak something, it's not the same as changing it, right? And so we'll come along because heaven forbid that God's word pop the bubble that I have for my life and how I want to live it. 
Don't let God's word get too close to how I've designed and shaped this. That's just so far type thinking. Are we so arrogant that we dole out advice to those confused, suffering souls around us, all the while acting like we know it all? Look, getting close to suffering in a real way is very raw in that context. It's hard. If you're able to dole out advice to suffering people and walk away unaffected, I can guarantee you you're not giving advice that comes from God's word. It is impossible to engage with the sufferer and remain distant. That's what Zophar is doing. Because if you're just throwing your little pithy proverbs at them and saying, just get over, do what it needs to be done, you can know it doesn't work. That's not how God designed this. See, Zophar paints a sad, delusional picture that looks way too much like us and how we think today. Cruelly speaking near truths that are misapplied so that we don't have to feel the reality of the world around us, the reality of eternity. Speaking in a way that allows us to avoid the truth of God's sacrifice and suffering for us and instead fixate on getting something material from him. It makes us terrible counselors and it makes us horrible proclaimers of truth. Now, Zophar wraps up Round one of the speeches. By the way, there's three rounds. Zophar doesn't participate in the third round because at that point, they got nothing else to say anymore. So as he wraps up round one, and you got to see him both individually and as a group. And so as we launch now into what Job says back to him, Job is addressing Zophar and he's going to answer some of the charges. So when Zophar says, you think you're sinless, Job's actually going to talk about sin. And you want to see, he's listening to what they say and he's responding to him and saying, no, I don't believe I'm sinless. But he's also going to kind of push back on all the friends because this is how this would work. Everyone gets a chance to talk. And then so this speech from Job deals with more than is, than is said to just Zophar. And so we look now at what Job said. By the way, you can almost split it in half. Uh, Job 12, 1 through 13, 19 shares what Job had to say to his friends. And then the rest is him actually speaking to God. So let's dive in. It says, And Job answered and said, No doubt, but ye are the people. And wisdom shall die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Yea, who knoweth not such things as these? And I love that. Basically, he says, no doubt you elites have all the wisdom in the world. And he says, no, you don't. And he says, you're not even sharing stuff that everyone doesn't already know anyway. Everyone knows this perspective. Thanks for elaborating on something that is obvious. This is what the world believes. Good, earn, wicked, punished. And then he says this, I am as one mocked of his neighbor who calleth upon God and he answereth him. The just upright man is laughed to scorn. He that is ready to slip with his feet is as a lamp despised in the thought of him that is at ease. The tabernacles of robbers prosper and they that provoke God are secure into whose hand God brings and bringeth abundantly. And what he says is I feel ridiculed because I called on God being blameless resulted in being laughed at and the people at ease, by the way, his friends, their scorn towards those suffering is not helpful, but is an additional blow to the sufferer. And then Job does something interesting. He's dragging their face to see reality. Because those robbers he's mentioning are robbers they all fear. Fear. They fear being robbed. This is a, a part of their culture. We live in a day and age where we're not as fearful of being robbed. 
So the fear you may feel about someone breaking your house, you might multiply that exponentially by 100 for these guys because we really live in a very secure society. And I'm not saying wicked doesn't happen and sin doesn't happen and that horrible catastrophe doesn't happen. But in perspective to how these guys could face tragedy, it was nothing. And so these robbers are real people that they fear. And Job says, just like they get away with stealing our stuff, just like they go in a secure place and thumb their noses at God, and it seems that God allows them to be abundant, he's saying they disdain God, and he points to this reality that wicked people prosper, and it doesn't look like they're going to have an end to it. He goes on, and he uses now some of their nature illustrations. That's been asked now the beast, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee, or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee, and the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee. And this is all poetry, remember, so a lot of repetition goes on. Who knoweth not all in these, that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this. In other words, look, even nature knows God's in control. Even nature knows that this is God who is responsible. This is important because he's about to say some really bold faith statements. And I want you to see him in context of the fact that he thinks God is doing this all to him. So he's still struggling with his view of God and blaming God. And he's using nature to make that point. He says, in whose hand, talking about God as the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind, doth not the ear try words and the mouth taste his meat with the ancient is wisdom and in length of days understanding. And, and he brings him back to this nature illustration. He says, look, even beasts in the field know God's sovereign. They recognize God's control. Even though they can't articulate it, they exemplify it. He says, look, we're not beasts in the field. We're actually human beings made in God's image who are able to reason and we're able to talk. And then it says, with him is counsel and understanding. Wisdom and power, though, reside in God alone. We're able to reason, think, and talk, but really all the wisdom and power sits with God. And then he starts talking about God and saying what God can do and how we can't respond to it. Behold, he breaketh down and it cannot be built again. He shutteth up a man and there can be no openings. Behold, he withholdeth the waters and they dry up. Also, he sendeth them out and they overturn the earth. With him is strength and wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. And I want you to realize what he's saying. He's telling his friends, you cannot domesticate God. The other way of saying this is that God is wild, but it gives us the wrong impression because he's not acting wildly. He's saying to his friends, you can't put God in a box and you're trying to do that. You're trying to tell God this is who he is and this is how it functions. And he's saying you cannot domesticate God. He does what he wants and we cannot thwart it. When he destroys, you don't rebuild. If he reholds water, there's a drought. When he sends water, it's a flood. God is strength and wisdom. He controls both sides of the equation, both the victim and the victimizer. And I want you to notice something, and I'm not extolling this at all in Job. Every illustration he's giving is negative. So he's not overcome how he feels, but he's trying to tell the friend something that is true about God. You don't domesticate God. Your system of thinking is way too tame. That's not reality. Then he goes on. He discovereth deep things out of darkness and bringeth out to light the shadow of death. God actually can bring chaos into an ordered world. Again, God is not controlled by you. You don't give God rules and tell God to obey him. This speaks to us. How many times have you said to God, that's not fair? And Job would tell you, you don't tell God what's fair. You don't domesticate God. You don't 
bring them down. Then he goes on, he increaseth the nations and destroys them. He enlarges the nations and then straighteneth them out again. He taketh away the heart of the chief of the people of the earth and causeth them to wander in a wilderness where there is no way. They grope in the dark without light and he maketh them to stagger like a drunken man. And now he shifts from regular people to nations and he says he moves the nations around with whatever, whatever he wants to do. He can raise the people up. He can send them back down again. God is constantly dealing with nations. All you have to do is read Israel's history. You want to see this principle in play? Read Habakkuk. Because in Habakkuk, that prophet struggles with the idea that God is going to punish Israel with the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And then chapter 2 tells him how God is going to punish the Babylonians for being the instrument God used to punish the Israelites. And so what Job is saying is a perfect truth. God does whatever he wants with the nations. God works and moves and accomplishes his purpose. Lo, mine eye has seen all this. Mine ear hath heard and understood it. What you know, the same do I know also. I'm not in fear to you. And he reiterates again in chapter 13 as we launch in. I know as much as you guys do. You don't know more, which is hitting all of them. But remember, Zophar is a know-it-all. He thinks that Job is simplistic and confused. And he says, I know as much as you. And since I'm your equal and I know your worldview and perspective, well, Job says, I'd rather talk to God. He says, surely I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to reason with God. By the way, it is his desire and it's also his insult to his friends. It is absolutely useless to talk with you guys because he says this, but ye are forgers of lies. You're a bunch of liars. You are all physicians of no value. You can help no one. Oh, that you would all together hold your peace. And I'm not going to say it because I don't want kids to say it, but he's saying, why don't you just be quiet? But use the word be quiet in a much tougher, meaner way. And it would be your wisdom. Your silence would be super wise compared to how bad you are at giving advice. Hear now my reasoning and hearken to the pleadings of my lips. He says, you're, you're useless. You're no help at all. Listen to me now. And then he shifts and he starts accusing them of something. And he, and he says something, and this isn't accurate, but remember, God says at the end of Job, he tells the friends, what you said about me is a lie. That's not true. And he says, basically, unless Job sacrifices for you, I'm going to destroy you. You're, you're done for. So recognize that Job is accurate, it's just not in how he views it. He actually accuses the friends of showing favoritism to God. He says, will you speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? Will you accept his person? Will you contend for God? Are you going to fight God's fight? Remember what they thought? They thought they could argue God's case better than God could. Is it good that you should search you out? Or as one man mock another, do you so mock him? He will surely reprove you. If you do secretly accept persons, in other words, if you keep talking this way about God, if you pretend that this is the God, you think this is the real God, God's going to come down. He's going to reprove you and correct you. You don't get to say this about God, which does happen. Shall not his excellencies make you afraid and his dread fall upon you? And I want you to realize this whole time that the friends have no fear or reverence of God. He is just a distant creature. Remember the other thing they say and that they keep teaching? There's no relationship with God. He's distant. He's foreign. He's far away. And he's saying he's not that way. And then he says, your remembrances are like unto ashes. In other words, your proverbs or your statements are, are useless. Your bodies to bodies of clay. 
God, he says, is not pleased with what you're saying, and that's made clear at the end. And beyond that, everything you say is an absolute worthless statement. So he says next, can you just be quiet? Stop warning me about talking to God. Stop telling me what's going to happen when I talk to God. I'll deal with that myself. I'd rather face the consequences of talking to God. So hold your peace. Let me alone that I may speak and let come on me what will. And in their mind, this idea of addressing God does have fear of punishment tied into it. That's what verse 14 is saying. Wherefore do I take my flesh and my teeth? In other words, I'm taking all the risk. I'm putting it in my mouth. This is my gamble, so to speak. And I take my life in mine hand. I'm going to take the consequences of speaking to God. You're useless. Stop warning me. Stop talking. I'll talk to God and we'll see what happens here. And then 15 is a very critical verse to highlight in the book of Job. And I want you to remember, he's been pretty negative about what's taking place. He thinks God is the one that's done this to him. He is telling the friends that God is somewhat wild, undomesticated, which is true. God is not to be put in a box, nor is he constrained to our rules. And then he says something, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Now he still says afterward, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. In other words, Job knows that he is blameless, that he's a man of integrity, that he's genuine. He's not wrong in that statement. It would be ungenuine of him to admit to being ungenuine because he is blameless. But he says something about God. He says, if I speak to God and the result of that is that he kills me for it, my trust, my hope is still in him. If the fallout is me dying, I will put all, and that's important, all my hope in him and still want to talk to him about my life. He also shall be my salvation. There's nothing you're saying that's going to change the course of my life or my eternity, but he will. And then he says, for a hypocrite shall not come before him. This tells you why Job thinks that God will listen to him because wicked people are not heard by God. But I'm not wicked. I'm blameless and I'm going to talk to God and I think God will hear me. I'm prepared. And so he says, hear diligently my speech and my declaration with your ears. Behold, now I ordered my cause. I know that I shall be justified. Who is he that will plead with me? For now, if I hold my tongue, I shall give up the ghost. In other words, I'm prepared to talk about this. I can't stop. I can't not do this. It doesn't matter what you say. I have to talk to God. And there's something in that desperation where we might read arrogance, but I want you to understand it is this driving desire to speak with his God. That the thing that is paining Job the most, and this doesn't negate his loss, but what is Job fixated on? They keep telling him to fixate on getting back what he lost, getting back your wealth, getting back your status, getting back your family in some way, shape, or form. And Job is fixated on being right with God, being right with God, being right with God. He cannot handle this idea that God and him are separated, and they're not. This is Satan's lie used by the friends to put a wedge in there. The suffering is intensifying and creating a wedge between him and God, but he's, there is no gulf. God is still there the whole time. And so he transitions from talking to the friends, and now in verse 20, he's talking to God. He says, only do not two things unto me, then will I not hide myself from thee. Withdraw mine hand far from me, and let not thy dread make me afraid. Then call thou, and I'll answer, or let me speak and answer thou me. In other words, Job says, if you'll just ease up for a minute, pull your hand off. He's telling God, I know it's you doing this, pull your hand off. 
because this suffering has paralyzed me and weakened me. So take that and then let me walk into your presence. And this is not any way belligerent. This is acknowledging the awesomeness of God's presence, which you see in Exodus as the nation of Israel comes to Mount Sinai and they run for fear and say, Moses, you be our, you be our go between guy. We're too afraid to do this. But Job is saying, give me a chance to come into your presence where I know I'll be struck with terror. Allow me to not be struck with terror. And he says, then I'll talk with you. And again, I want to talk to God. I still need God. And then he asks an interesting question. He looks at sin from various angles. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me to know my transgression and my sin. Zophar said he thinks he's sinless. Job says to God, I want to know. If I'm missing something, please let me know. Wherefore hidest thou thy face and holdest me for mine enemy? Wilt thou break a leaf driven to and fro and wilt thou pursue the dry stubble? In other words, don't turn your back on me. Remember, the friends weren't talking facing Job because you hold him in contempt. And so Job is saying to God, please don't turn your back on me. Don't turn away from me. Don't hold me in contempt. Please tell me what's going on. He says, are you really going to treat me this way? I mean, I'm just a, a dry leaf in the wind. You're the wind and I'm the nothing leaf that's there. Then Job kind of transitions a little. He says, you write as bitter things against me and makes me to possess the iniquities of my youth. In other words, you're making me pay for everything I've done wrong, even though I've sacrificed, even though I've sought re repentance or sought forgiveness for it. Thou puttest my feet also in the stocks. That one's easy to know, right? Locked up publicly. And lookest narrowly unto all my past. You're following what I do to the T. You're not giving me a minute. Thou settest the print upon the heels of my feet. In other words, you're restricting where I walk. You ever have that where you say you can walk on tiles, say walk where the steps are? That's what he's saying. God is putting prints of my feet and I have to step where he tells me to walk. And then he says, as a rotten thing consumeth as a garment that is moth eaten. And by the way, he's telling God, you're like the rot that eats it up and the moth that consumes. I can't get away from this. I'm suddenly now coming in. And he's again expressing his agony. He goes on to 14, man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. And then he shares some things about a shadow and a flower. And then verse four is critical. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Who can make clean what is unclean? And if you write in your Bibles, mark the next two words, not one. So after talking about his sin and then complaining a little bit about how horrible he feels, he switches to how weak humanity is. And then he says something that is critical theologically. You can't clean yourself and no one can. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Then Job goes on. Seeing that our days are determined and we have our number of months is counted by you. Thou hast appointed his bonds that he cannot pass. Turn from him that he may rest till he shall accomplish as a hireling his day. Job has some of the best theology listed and he goes right back to suffering and complaining. I can't clean myself. No one can. So can you give me just a second, like a, like a hired servant at break time, give me 15 minutes where you're not on me. But he does note something critical. Sin needs a solution and humanity cannot come up with that on their own. Every bit of advice the friend gives is about working your way to gain something or to work your way to redemption. And Job is realizing that is impossible. There is no answer at all from us. We bring, and understand this, 
nothing to the table. I want you to remember, there is no Bible for him to read. There's no theology manual for him to read. He is knowing this truth as God has shared it and through the oral tradition, and he recognizes something. He cannot fix his problem on his own. And he's telling his friends, you've got a problem too, and you cannot fix it on your own. Then he talks and he wants to show the desperate plight of mankind. And just for the sake of time, I'm going to say it. He he talks about a tree and the tree can die, but it can come back. And then he talks about man and he says, man dies and man does not come back on their own. A tree can come back. There's hope for a tree. Cut a tree down and it'll sprout some new trees and it could grow again. But a man gets cut to the ground and it says, till the heavens be no more, he's not waking up nor be raised out of his sleep. We die and we waste away on our own. We cannot resurrect ourselves. We do not have a rebirth option intrinsic in who we are. We die and we face the consequences of death. And then he says something about resurrection here, and this is critical. He longs for God to do something. And he shares a beautiful picture. Oh, that thou wouldest hide me in the grave. So I'm dead. That thou wouldest keep me secret until thy wrath be past. So I die and you're going to hold me in the grave until your wrath is done. The judgment for sin is done. That thou wouldest appoint me a set time and remember me. So you're not forgotten in the grave. You're not, as Stephen Hawking says, a computer that goes in the dump and it's disintegrated. No, but instead he is still holding you. And then he gets something. um, If a man dies, shall he live again? That's a question now, not a statement. All the days of my appointed time will I wait. I will sit there and wait. He says, till my change come. And that word for change is renewal. And the word for renewal is resurrection. He says, until I am resurrected. And again, Job's theology is amazing. It's, it's just wrapped in a lot of suffering and grief and a lot of looking at God and thinking God is doing this to him. But even in the midst of that, he still longs for God and he speaks about God such beautiful things. Thou shalt call and I will answer thee. Thou wilt have a desire to the work of thine hands. For now thou numberest my steps. Dost thou not watch over my sin? And he's actually sharing amazing truth. He's saying, you're not looking at my sin anymore. How is that possible? He just said before that God watches everything he does, every sin he does, everything he takes place, he gets punished for. Now he's saying, as I come to this resurrection, God's not watching sin anymore. Look at 17. My transgression is sealed up in a bag. As far as the east is from the west is how the psalmist would say it. In other words, God has forgiven sin and thou sowest up mine iniquity. He sees in the depth of his despairs, he looks at God and he sees God correctly and he longs for God correctly. You're not going to look at my sin. It's sealed. And actually the word sowest up mine iniquity is a word for covered my iniquities. You have covered it. That's words we use, right? We understand that. The idea of sowing it up is that you have covered over what sin is. Now, being Job, the end of 14, 13 through 22, and I'm just going to kind of move quickly through it. Mountains are going to fall. Rocks are going to be removed. Water is going to wear out the stone. Everything gets washed away. The hope of man is destroyed. Suddenly Job flips in a second and despair comes crushing down and his suffering is on him again. And he's looking at this and what he's saying in his closing verses is, if there's no resurrection, we are hopeless. 
Without God, we are hopeless. We're just like mountains that crumble. We're just like stone that wears out. If you prevail against us, we'll pass away. If you change your countenance, you're going to send us away. And he says something. If my sons, if someone's sons are honored, he doesn't even know it. If his sons are brought low, he doesn't know it. And that's pretty poignant for Job, who's lost all of his kids. But his flesh upon him shall have pain and his soul within him shall mourn. That's who he is right there. I'm not going to know anything. I'm in pain. I'm in suffering. I'm having a hard time having hope without a possible resurrection. And Job is sharing something that his friends need to hear, that without God, you've got nothing. There is no hope without him, that he has to act on man's behalf. Nature follows its course and works its way on, but we are beyond that. We're made in his image, and if God doesn't act on our behalf, then we have nothing What did Job mean? Hartley notes this. His tenacious determination to find a resolution with God himself holds him firm and allows him amid his tears and suffering, and I call outburst, to bring his disturbed thoughts into some focus. When Job hits on the mark in the middle of what is said, the music is beautiful. Because in the midst of unimaginable suffering, he rings a theological truth that that resonates because his hope is still fixed only on God. And he recognizes that God has to work for something to happen. And that focus that he comes to has little tolerance for the prattling of former friends. So he says to the friends, you're cruel, shallow, tame, and deceitful. You have a ridiculous system that if you just look at for a second, you realize doesn't make any sense. You don't speak accurately about God and you don't speak accurately about me. The caution to us should be to compassionately know the sufferer and their suffering and suffering in general. When you're dealing with someone, you need to know who they are. You need to know what they're walking through and diligently and discerningly make their savior forefront and fresh for them. God does not need you to twist who he is to club the hurting that he's entrusted you to heal by his grace and his love. He doesn't need you to turn him into a club. He's not a club. And so you are to bring to the sufferer his or her savior to the forefront and in a fresh way that they can see it because it's what you can learn from Job. Suffering buries the truth. That's why you read through Job and you see him make the most amazing theological faith-based statements followed by, this is horrible, I'm buried, I'm drowning, flavor. And it gives us instructions on how to walk life with the sufferer. And then Job talks to God, I long to speak with you, see the problem of sin and death. I know death must be overcome by resurrection that only you can give. Otherwise, we all face despair. He's struggling to see God's love, struggling while blaming God for suffering and still desperately wanting to talk to God. In other words, his focus is God and God alone. In light of his request to God and knowing he deserves to be annihilated for requesting an audience with God, he says, my hope is only in God, even if God were to kill me. And I want you to think for a second, let that level of faith sink in. And I dare to say that no one here has that level of faith. I know nothing that's going on. I think God is doing this all to me. I have no reason for it, but I will trust him even if he kills me. Even if he takes me off, my only trust is him. That's a type of faith that is hard to imagine because he's saying nothing else is worth hoping in. 
That's the message screamed from Job this morning. Job knows the, the just death penalty of sin. He knows that sin warrants death, and he's not denying that. He sees his sin accurately, as God does, and longs for God's resurrection, knowing we cannot accomplish that. Yes, he closes with a desperate note, but it carries an accurate thought. Everything does waste away without God's intervention. Everything must pay. And if God doesn't act, there is no real hope. We lose sight of that because we get caught up in our success, both medically, financially, whatever it is. We think we can insulate ourselves from life because we are one of the most prosperous, we're the most prosperous nation in the world. We're advanced beyond anyone's imagination. But the fact is, without God intervening for us, there is no hope. So ask yourself this, do you think like Job? He is a sufferer that feels and expresses quite a bit of wrong thinking. He expresses his pain by attacking the healer, but he never stops longing for that redeemer. He never loses sight of his hope, no matter what circumstances he's facing. He even says, if God directly kills me, my trust is in him And it results in Job longing for resurrection, which we know God does provide for us. So if you were to break down how you think and live and act, does it manifest even remotely the faith that Job manifested? If you were honest about your life and how you deal with what you face, and look, you take a cross-section of everyone here, and our level and type of suffering is all different. There really is no comparison from one to the other. But as we function in life, what we hope in, what we trust in, what we're looking for, does does it even remotely resemble what Job showed us today? That his only hope is in God alone. That even if God were to kill him, that was his trust. That he's looking forward to a resurrection and he paints a beautiful picture of that, knowing that only God could act on his behalf. Do we live life with the faith that Job has? Let's pray together. We Father, thank for the opportunity we have to continue walking through Job, and we walk through a painful picture, and, and there's, there is a lot of dis- display and despair in his life. He reverts back, cloaked in his truth statements, and even in verses that talk about his hope, and, he, and the picture he paints that is beautiful, he ends again with despair and suffering. He buries oftentimes the truth and in the emotions that he's feeling. But one thing we know about Job is he's genuine. And we can see even in the midst of of a tortured situation when the people that are closest to him turning on him and attacking him, he still keeps coming to you. His focus is to be right with you. His focus is on what you provide for eternity. And I wonder as we sit here this morning, as we walk through life, And all of us face different suffering and different struggles. I wonder if we could even remotely get near the faith that Job has. And I hope as we look at our lives and take some time to think about it, that we'll be confronted with the lies that we have hoped in and that our focus will shift and that we will be fixated on the only hope, and that's you. In your precious and holy name, amen.